Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, funding shortfall will transcend ridership numbers ever return to pre-pandemic levels. And from professional protesters to mountains of regulation, why is it so hard to get infrastructure built in this province? And are you still using password as your password? We look at how you can overcome password fatigue and protect your cyber data. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, the provincial government announced it is coming to the rescue of TransLink, providing $479 million in funding over three years. The money is to help fund projects and address dwindling ridership. Um, that issue, that latter issue, is impacting transit systems throughout North America. Here is Brad West, TransLink Mayor's, uh, TransLink Mayor's Council Chair, who spoke on the issue with Premier Eby about 90 minutes ago. Take a listen. Had the provincial government not stepped up in the way that it has, TransLake was facing transit service cuts and fare increases, the hallmarks of a death spiral that too many other cities are falling into. Instead, this significant funding package allows TransLink to move forward, delivering high-frequency, reliable, and affordable transit services for the people of our region. That was uh, Brad West, uh, West, TransLink Mayor Council Chair. Uh, David Eby, our Premier, of course, was there as well. He said this funding will also help transit continue to advance and expand. Take a listen. This funding will allow the Transit Authority to continue to advance priority projects that help people get around and reduce pollution. Expanding the uh, battery electric bus fleet from 4 to 155 in the next 24 months. Uh, joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global News legislative reporter. Uh, Richard, I was just listening to uh, Premier Eby there. Uh, obviously, want to expand the bus fleet, talking about the uh, environmental impact it'll have. First and foremost, um, listening to Brad West there, uh, was the money needed? Was the money as badly needed as Mr. West made it sound? Yeah, it sounds like, and this is something the mayor's been asking for for a while. Uh, we are having a severe shortfall in terms of revenues uh, based on projections. We are having worries about long-term stable funding, especially as the province works towards an electrification of our entire driving fleet in terms of pushing people to electric vehicles, which will impact the gas tax that goes directly to TransLink. So there are substantial concerns here. I just got some numbers uh, sent to me from TransLink that shows uh, significant drop-offs in terms of ridership revenue. So back in 2019, it was about $659 million in ridership revenues. In 2022, it was only $523 million. This year, it's forecasted to be up to $594 million. Yes, it's recovering, but it's nowhere near keeping up with what is needed uh, to ensure that we have an expansion of services, that we continue to the services we have, and to keep rates and fares consistent. The other crucial part about today, Jazz, is the fact the federal government was nowhere to be seen. This request from TransLink was for money from Ottawa with Victoria to match. Ottawa didn't even show up here, and Victoria has left a foot in the bill for $479 million. So I want to confirm, the the request was made? Yeah, the request was made. This came from TransLink, directly from Mayor's Council Chair Brad West. He held a press conference last month, uh, formally requesting Ottawa. They have a budget coming up in a week's time, and... The expectation all along was that that budget was going to have funding. I think the provincial government and, by extension, the mayor's council has gotten word from Ottawa that that money is not coming this time around, that it could be deemed too expensive uh, from the federal government to bail out all of the transit infrastructure, all the transit providers across Canada, uh, and that likely is not going to be part of the budget. So the province has this giant surplus that you and I have been talking a lot about, uh, worth more than $5 billion, and they were trying to spend as much of that as possible before the end of March and didn't want to roll the dice hoping that Ottawa would come to the table knowing that the window here provincially is closing in terms of accessing that money. So am I supposed to believe that, okay, I, I get the, well, if we give it to Vancouver, uh, everybody also want it, but are you telling me that if the Montreal transit system needed the money, or uh, Toronto, that there'd be no money there as well? Like, I mean, <laughs> generally, they're so central Canadian-focused. You're telling me they're willing to annoy everybody across the country in this case because of the potential precedent it would send? And this is what's 
surprises me, Jazz, because everybody is in a position. We keep hearing out of one side of their mouths that TransLink is recovering faster than any other transit provider in the country, and the other side saying we desperately need this cash. And, you know, I don't follow day-to-day news in Montreal or Toronto like I used to, uh, but I think we would hear about it by now if they were desperately pleading with the federal government for transit support as well. So it's unclear to me exactly where the end game is, considering that seemingly every jurisdiction will be struggling with these revenue shortfalls. Who's picking those up in other jurisdictions is unclear. Here's the province to ensure that we get that service delivery. And when you look at the areas that have been most impacted, suburban transit ridership uh, in some cases has actually gone up above pandemic levels. Uh, In the Fraser Valley, Surrey, Langley region, it's almost at 100%. When you look at the downtown core, closer to 70%. So we know where the challenge is here. More people are working virtually, more people are working from home, and less are accessing that transit system to move in and out of downtown Vancouver. Uh, so is TransLink confident that that ridership will come back? I'm talking about the overall ridership. It's all well and good if Surrey's yeah. um, uh, above and beyond the uh, uh, pre, uh, pre-pandemic levels. But if downtown, then this could be uh, permanent and structural for TransLink. Any, any sense from Kevin Quinn today that if he believes the numbers will come back even for downtown? Town Vancouver and some of the other areas that have not yet uh, hit the numbers that they were hoping? I think this funding shows, Jazz, that there is not a lot of confidence that it will get all the way back. That there is, reading between the lines here, a message that this funding is needed because not only is it short-term, but it's not going to come back long-term either. And that is going to cause a rethink at TransLink in terms of the way that operations are done. We also know that this long-term funding around the gas tax is going to go away as more people use electric vehicles. That's going to have an impact too. And then comes up the big question about mobility pricing. And that is going to be one of the great political conversations in our province. I asked the Premier about it twice. He said he's interested in creative options. For those not familiar, what mobility pricing is, is in essence charging people to use the roadways. And it would be punitive for those who live in suburban Metro Vancouver. The Premier has subsequently tweeted saying he is not considering mobility pricing because it would be political suicide. But it is good policy in many people's minds that, you know, you try to encourage people by getting off the roads, by charging them more to use them and offer them a transit system uh, in replace of that. So I think politically it's an issue that's dead, but but policy-wise it's an issue that will keep coming up again and again and again as we have these conversations about, you know, we know we're not going to have as many revenues as we used to coming into the system. How do we ensure long-term stable funding not only to keep what we have for transit, but grow and expand and, and improve the network. I mean, for our listeners, uh, I think uh, some of them may know or many of them may know, but when every time you gas up <laughs> with your fossil fuel vehicle uh, and uh, you pay 17 cents per liter at the pump, that 17 cents, I think it's buck 85 right now, buck 80, around that range, 17 cents per liter of that goes toward, directly towards TransLink. That pays for our transit system, at least the operating side, not the the capital side, but the operating side, essentially. And that is always they're always fighting over dollars here and there. Uh, and Richard, I think you would you would back me up on that. The challenge is that every single person who decides to buy an electric vehicle then doesn't pay that seventeen cents a liter. Hence the the budget shortfall. Now, if we're at five, six, seven percent EV use in the city. You know, I think everybody out there, every family is probably thinking if prices continue to drop with EVs, that the next family vehicle will be an EV, which means they won't be paying. So Mr. EB can say, we're not going to charge you for driving around the lower mainland. But five, eight years from now, we may have to revisit this issue when it comes to mobility pricing. And it will be a clear and present danger for TransLink when it comes to its funding. I mean, this is an existential challenge for this transit system. If it loses that $0.17 cents a litre tax, it's done. Where's that money coming from? The only government you can go to is the provincial government. Yeah, potentially Ottawa as well. You know, they weren't here this time, but Brad West is bringing a bunch of mayors to Ottawa in May, and they are going to plead their case that they need long-term stable funding. And it's not just people making that decision to move to electric vehicles, Jazz. The province is going to force people to do it. They are phasing out uh, the sale of new uh, combustion engine vehicles starting in 2030. We're going to start seeing that phase out. Yes, it feels like that next decade is a long way away, but... 
seven years is not that long when you're talking about a seismic shift like this. And the planning needs to be in place now for those repercussions coming out of that. So we will see. I think there's going to be pressure on senior levels of government, Ottawa and Victoria, to ensure that there is clarity about where that consistent funding will come for the transit network, because it has been expressed as an, as important uh, in Metro Vancouver. Well, people are reliant upon it to go about their business, and there needs to be assurances here. This gets us, you know, at least three years down the road, but beyond that, people are going to be looking for answers about who is going to foot the bill for the cost of expenses? It's interesting because central they do that in central London, but it's central London. It's, yeah. a, it's that's a world class <laughs> city, and we're a mid tier city. Remember, the last uh, Vancouver administration under Kennedy Stewart studied the issue. They didn't say they were going to implement it, although Ken Sim went to town on that during the election campaign, implying they were. But I think British Columbians, Vancouverites especially have great difficulty accepting the issue of mobility pricing. Perhaps it may be a couple hundred dollars on your ICBC bill uh, for driving around the lower mainland as a flat rate rather than saying if you just come downtown. Because at the end of the day, when you look at congestion, uh, Vancouver, downtown may be perhaps, uh, you know, the number one destination for commuting, but the bulk of our commuting, 90% plus, is suburb to suburb. It's not suburb to downtown Vancouver. So that mobility pricing model will also have to be um, looked at. But I think today's announcement, I think it's, it's unique in the sense that, as you said, what will the funding model look like? COVID or no COVID, what will it look like? And I think that's, uh, that is coming home to roost very quickly. That's for sure. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This week, uh, Commission of Inquiry blamed the United Nations and the Syrian government. Uh, They held both entities responsible for delays in getting emergency aid to Syrians after the devastating earthquake uh, last month. Now, last month's earthquake killed some 7,000 people in Syria and over 48,000 in neighboring Turkey. The UN estimates that 5 million people need basic shelter and non-food assistance in the quake-hit parts of Syria alone. Joining me now to discuss the latest is Maya Khudsi, who lives in Aleppo, Syria. Maya, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, What are you seeing and hearing in your community today? So, um, I think the most um, basic thing now, people hearing news, they don't care if it's fake or not. It's just rumors sometimes. You know, I I don't know if you heard there's some scientist named Frank and everyone is like posting in his page that like in 8th of March... Uh, another big earthquake gonna happen and then another one in 9th of march so it's just lies but people are still scared no like i know um two of my friends their house is like on the first floor they 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 still out they didn't go back to their home because Mm -hmm. they're scared of all that news but nothing happened so there's lots of people relying on rumor uh, and innuendo yeah um, uh, because there is that vacuum for news, how are people getting about going about ev- their every day? I mean, there still must be a lot of uh, damage and destruction. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, people helping as well. Uh, how do people go about their their daily lives? So I'm um, I'm not gonna say everything went back to normal, but um, with people trying their best um we see some tents in uh, in the streets still those people need help from like um the red crescent or the other organizations that helping people to find places because i think it's um they build they're building new um buildings because as i told you the other time they were in mosques and schools but now everyone is out because the school needs to go back and Ramadan is coming and the mosque have to be open for everyone. Mm-hmm. So they finding a places that uh, for people who actually lost their houses not because a lot of people they are like um like they don't have much money and when they saw that everyone in school or mosque they're getting food and and like a good shelter they just left their house and went to there to um like you know have some food like because everyone is already like very they are in a very bad situation and with with the earthquake it's it got even worse but they didn't lose their house but they still need help 
but because the focus were on the people who lost their house, on, so they go to the mosque and schools to like to give food. Mm-hmm. So people just started going there. So now they're doing some um, procedures to f- to see who actually need a house and shelter and who just need like you know support, like all kind of support. There's some mental um, support group, like uh, a lot of um, teenagers and like um, people who did study psychology and so like something similar. They going to the like uh, places that like major places that have the earthquake um, destroyed it, and they di- they doing like some kids um, emotional support kind of thing. They doing like a like dances and they play and they play like together and which is very good. Like now they focusing on the small stuff, not about like the food and the shelter. Like now they thinking about the details, which is good. Mm-hmm. Is is you mentioned some of the uh, help from mosques and and local groups? Is aid getting through uh, to places like Syria? Do you see it uh, from? Yes, you do. So like um, I know the Red Crescent are having a lot of um, aids from Dubai uh, from United Emirates, which is like you can see it says from Dubai, Water Dubai, or like um, United Emirates. You see from Germany, from Libya, I think, um, from Nigeria, as I said before. You can, no, there's there's a good amount of aids is coming to the and people actually getting it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, uh- how long do you think it'll take um, the region you're in to get back to where it was before in regards to people going about their daily lives? Like, to be honest, it's we had the war before and then we had this and it's like no one is, you know, we every time we say we want to go back to where we were, but it's I feel like it's not possible anymore because it's the like the 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 damage in our hearts and in actually in our life is really bad. So I don't think we can go back to normal, but we can rebuild, not rebuild actually, to build a new lifestyle, I, I might say. Mm-hmm. Like to to get used to the new, this like to this new thing, new life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, in regards to... Uh, just uh, where you're at and, and sort of what you're hearing uh, in the community, you were saying it's, it's, it, it, it may not go back to normal uh, or the normal that people there uh, are used to. Um, in regards to just the infrastructure, though, just in regards to running water, to uh, having employment, to goods and services, to food, shelter and clothing, uh, is that possible by the end of this year? I think the water um, system in the very bad areas that damaged um, is is better now from like a month ago. They ha- like we have water, which is good. Like every two days, we have a like it's it's a cycle around Aleppo. Mm-hmm. So every few days you will have a water, but we like we um, fill up some bottles and we do everything we need to do when there's a water. Uh, but in regards to, do you feel safe? Um, from the earthquake? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I feel like, like that's it. It's not going to happen again. That, that bad. Well, you've been very positive uh, throughout all this, and I really appreciate uh, your time uh, and sharing the stories from uh, your country. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's uh, touch on what you just heard over the uh, 4 o'clock newscast. Uh, This is in regards to the 37-year-old Vancouver woman who was charged with mischief after she appeared topless uh, at the Juno Awards on Monday night uh, in Edmonton. Casey Hatherley, um, who goes by a nickname Ever, uh, was held in custody and appeared in court today in Edmonton. Her next court date is April 5th. Uh, she um, had slogans scrawl, scrawled on her torso and back in opposition to the Ontario government's uh, plan to build housing um, on farmland. I guess she, when she got on stage, she interrupted Avril Lavigne, uh, the singer, of course, uh, 
shouted profanity and demanded that she leave the stage. Um, Ms. Hatherley uh, has gained attention in, in the past as well beyond this stunt. Uh, she skilled an Art Deco uh, Tourism Victoria Visitor Center uh, last August, as I said, and last June, uh, she and a male save old growth protester walked down level two over at BC Place during a a, a soccer game uh, uh, that Team Canada was involved in, and proceeded to attach herself uh, to uh, to a goalpost with zap straps. Um, about fourteen thousand people in attendance who booed her, uh, but obviously she believes her cause is greater than that. Uh, she, of course, uh, has been talking. In this case, it was about development, but in the past, she's also talked about old gold forests. Uh, she was asked to sort of talk about what transpired uh, at that um, uh, the Juno Awards on Monday night. Take a listen to what she had to say today. To be honest, in my heart of hearts, I really was hoping that Avril would, you know, be punk rock and anti-establishment, maybe hand me the mic and let me say my thing. Um, i totally not upset about anything that went down, though. Now, listening to uh, Ms. Hatherley, she makes it sound like it's a, a walk in the park. Now, I understand civil disobedience and speaking up for what you believe in. But in the case of what uh, Ms. Hatherley did last June in regards to protesting at BC Place, disrupting a, a soccer game where our national team was playing, uh, is absurd. But l- let's just hang on just for a second. That she is, uh, She's commented and talked about our forest industry in the past, about saving old growth forests. What isn't ever mentioned is our forest industry is on its knees right now. Many sawmills in the last five years have shut down. Uh, this region is viewed in many cases by forest companies as not a place you can do business anymore. Forest companies are investing further in, on, uh, in Alberta or parts of Europe or the United States, not here in B.C., and as these protesters who continue to talk about old growth, we have many, many parks in this province, many provincial parks. But the First Nations communities who also want to harvest um, uh, trees, uh, and they wish to uh, do so with uh, very stringent, uh, in with a very stringent environmental model. And so, for these professional protesters to come in every single time uh, to come in and protest and say this shouldn't be built or that shouldn't be built, even though these companies and in cases First Nation communities have had full approval from government, have met the environmental standards that government has set, and they still aren't able to do business. Now, yesterday we heard of um, Cedar LNG moving forward. That is the $3 billion LNG project. Uh, in Kitimat, we had Ellis Ross, the former chief counselor of the Heisler First Nation in Kitimat, and he is now, of course, the BC Liberal MLA for the Skeena region in that area. Uh, even he has talked about the challenges of doing business in this province. Even though a pipeline has been approved, there continues to be protests driving up costs. And even now, it's not just protesters. It's significant regulations. Uh, Mr. Ross was uh, on this show yesterday. Take a listen to what he had to say in regards to just because they got approval yesterday doesn't mean uh, it's free and open for, for them to move forward when it comes to getting this project up and running. In fact, as chief counselor, I was like three years in my term, I was considering resigning. But what kept me going was the fact that, look, this is going to make BC stronger. It's going to uplift an entire generation of First Nations out of poverty, which you already proved before that. But the only missing piece for me was I didn't understand the amount of politics around LNG until I got to Victoria. And now understanding that LNG has been a political football, I mean, we're just rehashing media releases from 2018, basically, in terms of the climate action plan. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Finally, I hope that the politics are lining up with the reality now in terms of oil and gas. So Mr. Ross brought up the issue of regulations and the challenges there. And of course, there are protests on the coastal gas link line and significant protests and and vandalism over a million dollars in damage. And they still haven't solved that case. Now, yesterday, we also had Richard Masson on the show, an executive fellow at the University of Calgary's School of Public Policy. We talked about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that pipeline will be moving significantly more oil from the oil sands, from Alberta to the West Coast. Once again, they followed the rules. They got approval from government, federal and provincial. And all First Nations, much like the natural gas line, the coastal gas link line in the north, all of them have approval from First Nations communities who have bought on and will receive financial compensation, whether it's natural gas or oil. Yet there still continues to be protest. How much protest? Well, our government, meaning us as taxpayers, have had to buy that pipeline. 
that original budget for that pipeline was $5.4 billion. And a private sector company that is has the expertise to build pipelines said, we can't do it. So the So we, as taxpayers and our government, had to buy it because it is of strategic and national importance. Well, we just recently learned the cost of that pipeline is now $30 billion. Now, don't get me wrong. COVID's had an impact with that. Supply chains have had an impact with that. There have been other challenges. The weather, uh, floods, all of that has an impact on the cost of that pipeline. But the constant noise and protest has also impacted that as well. Here's Mr. Masson from yesterday. He's from the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, as I said, talking about the skyrocketing, skyrocketing costs of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is now 80% complete. And remember, as he's speaking, the original cost was $5.4 billion, and now it's $30 billion. Well, it's a shocking number. Uh, you know, this pipeline originally uh, estimates were $5 billion. So this is about six times the early estimates. And the latest increase from just a year ago is $10 billion. So it, it just says that everything that probably could have slowed and delayed the pipeline has gone that way. There's been so many challenges with weather, the floods, fires, led to lower labor productivity. There's been more Indigenous artifacts um, collected. And, you know, just one thing after another that's added to the cost of this, this pipeline, and it makes it so expensive compared to what we thought it was going to be in the beginning. And as I said, there are other challenges there, as uh, Mr. Masson has uh, articulated very well. But remember, a private sector company, after many years of going through all the hoops they had to go through, got approval from the government. And then they had to sell it off to government because it didn't make any financial sense because to the extensive amount of opposition and regulations that they had to go through. Now, I say all this because this province has built slowly a reputation of not getting things done, that it is difficult to get projects past the finish line. For a large-scale LNG project like LNG Canada, $36 billion project, largest private sector investment in the history of this country, it takes five years to get that project to the point it will get approval, potentially from government. You need a billion dollars to be spent, spent before you get to a point where government will consider it, yes or no. So that's all the environmental issues that have to be dealt with, uh, all the consultation with First Nations and non-First Nations community, significant amount of negotiations with private sector companies and customers and future customers as well. And once you've spent a billion dollars, then you might get a yes or no. And even now, that uh, even though they have approval, that coastal gas link has been vandalized extensively. We still haven't caught the people who did it. And there's still opposition, even though we're supposed to be a country of laws. You follow the process. If you get approved, so be it. If you don't, so be it. But if you've been approved, you should be able to do your business in this country and in this province. That doesn't seem to be the case. Many years ago, when I worked for the LNG industry, I was in Mumbai at a very um, uh, large company there that has been around for well over 150 years. And I was just uh, walking them through the LNG industry in this province in its early stages before any, any of the projects had been approved. And a senior executive there stopped me in the middle of my, um, my presentation and he said, Mr. Joe Hall, thank you. I just want to ask one question. Why can't you guys, you guys, get anything past the finish line in your province and your country? We were asked in 2013 if we wish to invest. In this case, the project would have been about a billion dollars investment. I was there about 2016. And here we are, he says, uh, you know, five years later. And uh, nothing's occurred, yet we're getting many, many investors coming to us from the United States and other parts of the world want us to invest in their LNG projects. We thought we would invest in your province and your country, and you folks cannot get things past the finish line, even though we are following the rules that you have created. And so when I see these protesters, whether it be old growth protesters, whether it be LNG, whether it be oil, we have fundamentally scared off investors in our country. Now, I know we have a decent reputation in this world. I hope we do still. But we've got a lot of work to do in regards to attracting that investment and telling those folks, yes, you can get things done. We are a country of laws. You may remember those protesters at Lionsgate Bridge last year. You know, they should get jail time. Yes, there's uh, civil disobedience. But when you're inconveniencing people, working people, there's something fundamentally wrong. And we have created a culture here that said if you protest, not only will you not get arrested, 
but you'll never get charged. There'll be no accountability. And that is a culture we have built, and that is a challenge we have before us in this great province, in this country today. Let's talk passwords. I'm not a big fan of passwords. I mean, I know what they're there for, but you know, you're always constantly asked for your password or you're asked to update your password. Well, recently, Cyber News studied data from publicly leaked uh, data breaches, and they looked at, at over 15 billion passports, uh, passwords that uh, uh, people used. Of that massive uh, data set, about 2 billion were unique uh, passwords, showing that millions of people around the world use similar passwords. In fact, you know, when you look at um, sort of the passwords people use, sometimes it's their sports teams, their cities, their food. Um, and uh, so Cyber News uh, printed out their top 10 most common password list in 2023. And and here, here they are. Take a listen. Password number one, one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> That's it. The second one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> uh, number three was QWERTY, which is basically six letters all in the same row on your key- keyboard. Uh, and of course, was the other one, password. Password was the password. Uh, and then the uh, number uh, five, one, two, three, four, five. And then there's QWERTY, one, two, three. And then there's one Q, two W, three. I go, well, that's different. It's actually not. It's number one, and the right underneath is Q. Number two, right underneath is W on the keyboard. And after that, it's just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then there's one, 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 one. So you can tell we don't spend enough time thinking about passwords. Um, March 15th is the Better Business Bureau's Password Day, and they're encouraging the public, of course, of course, to protect themselves from fraud by changing their passwords to be, as they say, more ugly. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about making your password ugly is Nisha Hoti. She's the Better Business Bureau's Communications Director. Nisha, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. (laughs) Well, what do you mean by making your password ugly? (laughs) I mean, I think it's just our way of saying, make it more complicated, right? So, I mean, it it is really funny to think about the most common passwords continue to be the things that we've been saying for many years. Please don't do this, right? Mm -hmm. And I understand that having, you know, up to 70, 80, even 100 passwords in different places it starts to get daunting. You're, you're, you know, you think about how am I going to remember all of these and I want to make it easy for myself. And so the making it ugly part is can you make it more unique by adding characters and other other symbols to make it a little bit uglier and hopefully harder to crack? So uh, uh, what kind of things should you be looking for if you are making a password? Because we do get asked to make passwords all the time. What kind of things would you recommend? So, so we say use something called a passphrase. So really, it's a number of words together, and you're using characters, so not just letters. So, for example, you know, we were, we were saying, if I was a Canucks fan in 2010, right, that's a whole sentence. How do you turn that into a password? Well, you could have I was, and the A and the S could be the at symbol or the dollar sign. You could turn the 10 in 10 as to a slash 10 so you actually are using more complicated um, information for the password itself. I mean, using your dog's name as your password is probably not safe if your dog is plastered all over your social media, right? Like these are things that we do and we don't think about how easy it is. So our kid's name and a birth date or a birth year, that's a really common that's a really common way of creating a password. So trying to create a passphrase, which is a phrase specific to you, and turning it into a password is something that might be more unique. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of the issue is, you know, you sign up for anything now, and you got to have an email, you got to have a password. It's not to use that same password for different different accounts. And I and I'm guilty of that of all people. But but that's part of the that that's that's a big issue, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. You might have one password that you think you're using for your banking. Well, here's the thing. If they crack it once, they'll be able to crack it across the board. And so that's where you have to be really careful. So having different passwords for different things is one level of it. But within banking, specifically that area where it's connected to your finances, you might want to be using different passwords for each account. Now, I get it. It is complicated and you are having more and more passwords to remember. And, and that is you kind of the unfortunate reality of us being in such a digital world. But you do want to have different passwords because, again, if you crack one, you're making it really easy for a hacker or a scammer to, to find your information across the board. Um, are you getting a lot of calls from 
uh, folks who have uh, increasingly been member uh, been a victim of uh, this cyber theft? So we so online. Online scams is about 30% of all scams, and some level of that is included with passwords or hacking, um, phishing even. So it's, um, it's not just the password piece to it. It's, it's connected to more to a larger scam usually, right? And there's identity theft that's happening, and there's credit card scams. So credit card scams are also part of our top 10. So things to consider here, right? You are, um, your password is connected to all of these other scam opportunities, and, and so that in itself is usually the big the bigger issue. And so what I can say with that is that the password becomes a part of protecting yourself overall. Nisha, thanks for your time. So happy to be here and please change those passwords. Many times uh, in our city and throughout Canada, you have immigrants, of course, coming here at significant numbers and too often uh, the skills they bring aren't always recognized. Uh, How often have you run into, let's say, a taxi driver who used to be a doctor or somebody uh, that is taking an order for for some food you're ordering and they're an engineer um, uh, in a a previous life? Uh, Too often that is... um, occurring uh, in our province, in our country, and uh, getting these people, these individuals, uh, highly talented people into our workforce, but also recognizing the tremendous contribution they can make uh, is very important. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, immigrants and new arrivals in our country, making sure we um, get them to not only enter the labor market, but we make sure we provide them the opportunities to reach their full potential, is Marie-France Lalonde. She is the Parliamentary Secretary for Immigration. Uh, Ms. Lalonde, thank you for joining us today. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about uh, a program announced with the YWCA here in Vancouver in regards to um, you know helping racialized newcomers, particularly women, uh, to really enter the IT industry. Give, give us some background in regards to this program. Well, thank you very much. And you know what? I'm here in Vancouver today, and I had the pleasure, actually, of visiting the uh, YWCA, the Y Metro Vancouver, uh, met with uh, amazing women, and uh, I had the pleasure to announce that uh, we are funding them. We'll continue funding them uh, with $1.1 million under the program called Racialized Newcomer Women Pilot. And that is actually direct support uh, for organizations just like the Y to create the opportunities for women to participate equally and fully into into the economy. And one thing you just said is exactly is the full potential of these wonderful women that come to Canada, and sometimes they do not have the same opportunities as others. So what this program is about is actually that connection. And what the Y, uh, uh, you know, the program is called at the Y Tech Connect, uh, which is uh, just an amazing group of individuals that I met. And I actually met two participants uh, this afternoon where, uh, you know, they shared their stories, they shared their pathways. And, and it was amazing to see the dedication and the eagerness to, to um, you know, continue to lead in this. And mostly what I saw is that the Tech Connect programs actually do far more than offering the point to find uh, meaningful employment. They also have brought uh, a social network, a special bond be- beside uh, just the connection of doing uh, and seeking that work employment. So I'm very honored, and it was amazing uh, to meet with these uh, wonderful participants this afternoon here in Vancouver. And this is not specific to your government, but this has been going on for decades. Why do we have such difficulty as a country? We invite immigrants to come to this country, but we have not been able to create a pathway, and that's just not federal, but provincial as well, uh, for them to go to school, to upgrade their skills, or at least to take tests that would recognize some of that training. And if they do need to take other courses, so be it. Uh, You see that with the medical field, you see that with the engineering field, and and in this case, uh, the IT field. What else do you think this country needs to do, our country needs to do, in regards to making sure it's so much easier? Like I've had doctors who I've talked to basically have to go back to school for five years upon coming to Canada. 
uh, and then have very few positions open so they can actually um, finish their studies. But five years of actually already being a doctor in a different country, it shouldn't take five years. What else needs to be done in our country, in your mind, uh, to, to, to not only uh, recognize that, but speed up the process so these folks can get to work? Well, actually, this is a very good question because, you know, as we're engaging conversation with uh, individuals and such as, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, woman at the Y that I had the pleasure of meeting, we know that their skills need to be recognized. Uh, federally, we uh, have proposed and we put in place uh, larger funds to help provincial government and uh, regulator uh, all across uh, the country uh, to come together in helping. And we've seen several provinces, you know, being um, very proactive in engaging because the wealth of of knowledge and skills that newcomers bring, and this program today is exactly this, right? These are racialized newcomers uh, who have, through the Tech Connect, the ability to find meaningful employment uh, in the tech industry um, and connect all those players together. And they can go to networking events. They can be mentor uh, into leading to employment. So I have to say, I agree with you. We need to do better. But this is a conversation that we're having. And when we empower women with the tools and the skills that they need to succeed, uh, there's nothing that we can accomplish. So as a very proud woman, I'll say this. And again, it was just outstanding to hear the stories of uh, the two participants that I had the pleasure of, of meeting. One was from India originally, and the other one was from Ukraine. And, you know, they had skills, but they didn't know exactly how that connection and this programs that we uh, are recognizing, the Tech Connect as a Y, help build the capacity to uh, newcomers and, and women newcomers to achieve a full potential in a very male-dominated industry. Minister, uh, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much for the time. Well, if you've eaten in Chinatown, you've probably heard of Kent's Kitchen. It's been around for more than 40 years. It's one of the few spots um, in the city where you can pick up a two-item rice or a noodle combo for under $12. So quite the deal, and uh, certainly anybody who's been there knows that it's part of the fabric of, of Chinatown. Uh, but uh, residents there and those around the city who go there to eat say the restaurant is closing its doors. And, of course, the news has has left the community quite shocked and devastated and wondering if uh, there will be others as well. And uh, people aren't sure what, why it's closing. Others have talked about whether it's been rising rents or has it been, um, you know, uh, partially not being able to hire more employees or is it record inflation? All those issues have been thrown about in regards to the closure. But there's no doubt it's not the first business that has uh, closed uh, post-COVID and many believe uh, it won't be the last, but it is impacting neighborhoods, especially communities like Chinatown, uh, which have been hit, uh, you know, by many, many, many challenges when you look at the issue of random violence, when you look at uh, high rents, uh, and that challenge still continues. Joining me now to talk a little bit about Kent's Kitchen, but also the broader challenge that uh, many uh, neighbourhoods are facing is Lorraine Lowe. She's the Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So good to speak to you. Uh, let's talk about Kent's Kitchen first and foremost. Uh, what does a, a restaurant like that mean for for the community and its closure? What does this mean? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of our community. It was a devastating blow when we got the news this weekend. You know, Kent's Kitchen, it's an anchor institution, and it serves such a diverse population, like from the low-income seniors in the neighbourhood in both the downtown east side and Chinatown, there's construction workers, um, you know, the nonprofit workers, the students, and people like me that work down there. You know, it, it's it's been it's been tough. Yeah, it's been a tough go lately. But you know, yeah, this one this one hits extra hard and stings extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you any sense of why they're closing? Is it a question of rent? Is it a question of uh, inflation? Uh, is it uh, uh, other things? Uh, have you heard anything? 
Well, you know, it, I mean, the, the, the issue has been ongoing for quite some time. It's been going on for years, you know, the deterioration of the neighbourhood. Uh, but uh, rumour is, is that, you know, the uh, property tax rate increase was like up by 30%. So the landlord has to hand that down to the tenant. And, you know, the rising food costs, like just everything with COVID, there's so many moving parts here. We're talking public safety, affordability issues the cost of living, it's, I think it's all coming at us all at once. But um, the, the key reason was the uh, rate increase in the property tax and that, in turn, uh, uh, a hike in the rent. Do you think there will be more businesses, not just in Chinatown, but in, in Vancouver? Because it is a high-cost area and it is challenging. Um, do you think there will be more because of this uh, increase? Uh, absolutely. You know, it's very concerning, the hollowing out of like just, you know, Gastown, downtown. Um, you know, I do know that there's been some talks about some in, uh, like in big employers pulling out of Gastown and in other areas. So, yes, it you know, with Nordstrom shutting down and, and that that also, you know, stirred kind of a, a, a panic. Um, again, you know, it's 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 how it is. It's, it's downtown Vancouver and, and that's like all the area. So, yeah, very concerning. Um, are you hopeful for Chinatown? The reason I ask that question is it's an integral part, obviously, of the city, uh, for the Chinese community and its heritage and, and its history. But, you know, there has been just this ongoing uh, blow after blow uh, against this community and this neighborhood. Uh, and I'm not sure how you fix it. I mean, is, is this a long-term permanent decline? Or do you think or do you still remain an optimist? Well, I am an optimist, only because, you know, we have some great leadership in the community. Um, you know, we've got Carol Lee, the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, her vision and her leadership. You've seen what she's done on that block, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's, there's a bunch of people, very, very, like, young entrepreneurs who are passionate about saving Chinatown and who are entrepreneurs. People that are small business owners, like Ryan Diaz from DCS. We've got William from Cam Y, Tracy from Forum. Like this group of young, enthusiastic business owners, they're willing to, to you know, work together and pool our resources and even ideas to maybe see if there's something that we can do and that, you know, we can work with, with the municipal level of government to do something. Because downtown east side in Chinatown, it's a mess. Um, uh- when you look at the Chinese community and its its history there in Chinatown, is part of the challenge also that the Chinese community, when it's shopping, specifically for Chinese products or part of their heritage, more of them are just spending time in other stores in and around Vancouver or perhaps going to the air-conditioned malls of Richmond. And I say that because the South, the South Asian community, one would argue at Main and 49th, has seen an exodus to the suburbs. And if you want to buy something that is specific to your heritage, Indian heritage, you may go now to Surrey or you may go to Abbotsford. Uh, I'm going to assume that Chinatown is dealing with some of that as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, this is not just going on in Vancouver. You, you know, you're in San Francisco, the same thing. It's not just San Francisco, Chinatown. You know, they, people have kind of moved out into their own little business districts and kind of set up their own little communities. And, you know, that, that's a great example that you talk about, you know, the Punjabi market. Like, I grew up in that area. And, and you know, now it's kind of, it's sad because you're, you're, you're walking down the street and you see like a Mary, Mary um, James Fry chicken and you see like Tim Hortons. Yeah. You know, that's happening over there too. So, yeah, it, it, it's very disheartening. Uh, do you think, do you think this council can, can help? Uh, and because I don't think any council is going to be able to make this all the changes, of course, provincial government has to be involved as well. Uh, do you think, think that Mr. Sim can, can, and his council can, can have an impact that you feel needs to occur in, in, in Chinatown? Well, I think that we're heading in the right direction because this council is the first council that's ever come out and, and made Chinatown a priority and said, hey, you know what, this is we, what we need to do. We need to uplift Chinatown. And, um, you know, it's not so much council that can do it because council still needs to direct staff and staff needs to come back with a plan of action. And then that gets passed. So, you know, a lot of time is is being uh, used like in between. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, there's people that are businesses like this that are suffering. So, yeah, it's not an overnight fix because the problem wasn't created overnight. So it's going to take a long time, if any, you know, to 
to kind of make things better. And the best that we can do is do our best to try to make the current situation as, as, as good as we can right now. And we, you know, we need to start planning ahead and hopefully having a sustainable model for the community. When you walk around Chinatown, uh, you know, your heritage, uh, what goes to your mind? I'm very curious. It's such a phenomenal place, so much history there. What's it like for you walking around that neighborhood? Well, it, it's nostalgic for one because I grew up here in Vancouver going down the Chinatown all the time. But it's also really sad because of all the, of the, the shops that have shut down, you know, the broken windows, the boarded up shops, the shutters. You know, it's sad because what, what I remember as a child growing up, that's not there anymore. And we do need to move on. And whatever that means, it doesn't have to be exactly the same as it was 30 years ago. But, you know, welcoming the, uh, you know, different types of businesses, for example, like we've got other businesses that are just over on Georgia, you know, Lawai, we've got Bagheera, like those are actually anchor businesses that will help us drive more, you know, visitation into the neighborhood. So it's a win-win for all. Mm -hmm. And then we still keep the legacy businesses if we can to support those and those businesses with the help of the three levels of government. That would be ideal. And, you know, yeah, it's it's sad, but at the same time, you know, I, I do believe that we can get to a point where we can have some sort of balance right now. But you know, we're not going to be winning like 150%. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious, as you are the executive director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden, are you having any difficulty attracting people to come? I know it's a beautiful facility, great place. Um, are there, is there hesitation from some folks, though, to, to, to go to that area because of some of the challenges in the past? Well, uh, definitely in 2022, we heard um, just, you know, just even online um, mm-hmm. reviews and we've got travel advisories being uh, put out like in uh, Europe not to come visit Chinatown. But, you know, with the programming that we're doing right now, we've actually evolved because of what's happened during COVID into more of an arts and culture venue cultural hub. So we are getting that local interest back into the community um, and you know what? We're going to do, have to do what it is, what it takes, which is having that that young, vibrant, you know, um, feel that we're going to have to start drawing people back in, mm-hmm. and that's what it's going to take. But 2022 was actually a decent year for us because of, we changed up our programming. Well, that is great. Well, Lorraine, thank you so much for your time today. Always enjoy chatting with you, and look forward to having you on the show soon. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.